According to its adversaries, the Republican Party is on the ropes, in a civil war, divided between those who'd like to find new leadership after Donald Trump failed to win re-election, and a base that remains intensely loyal to the former president. GOP representatives and senators are in the minority, and the Democrats in charge are advancing an ambitious agenda to rebuild American infrastructure, expand supports for the poor and education for children from birth to college. They'd pay for it by repealing much of the Republicans' 2017 tax law and potentially increasing taxes on heirs. If Senate Democrats eliminate or change the filibuster, it will be hard for Republicans to block. Amidst this bad news, though, the party is well-positioned to take back the House in 2022, given its unexpectedly strong performance in 2020, picking up 11 seats and narrowing the Democratic majority to just nine. And on Capitol Hill, it's remained united in its opposition to a barrage of Democratic bills to provide billions in coronavirus relief, set federal standards for elections, increase welfare benefits, protect LGBT people from discrimination, restrict gun rights, and expand union organizing. Representative Mike Johnson has risen fast in the party ranks since his 2016 election in a Northwest Louisiana district. A former lawyer in private practice and for a conservative advocacy group that defends religious liberty and opposed same-sex marriage, he is now vice chairman of the GOP conference in the House and served from 2019 to 2020 as chairman of the Republican Study Committee, the largest party caucus. He joins us today to discuss the future of the Republican Party. Welcome to the show, Congressman. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Congressman, what does the Republican Party need to do to get back to power in Washington? I think this is actually uh, pretty simple. I I think there's a tendency to overcomplicate things, but I I genuinely believe that our party and the country are in a similar situation as we were, say, in the mid-1970s. And I've often quoted, as many conservatives do, uh, remembering fondly the speech that Ronald Reagan gave to CPAC in 1975. Uh, And and that was the the famous uh, time where he said, you know, a lot of people think that we may need to pitch a third party and have some new idea, some new vision. And, And he rejected that. And Reagan said, this is the time for us to paint with bold colors and not not speak in pale pastels. We need to present a real vision. We need to explain to the American people what it is we're for and what solutions we have to all the challenges facing the country. I think we're in a similar time, and and we know the result of that, ultimately, uh, that Ronald Reagan was able to bring in a new revolution. He also said famously in his farewell address, you know, they called me the great communicator, but I wasn't that, you know, at the end of this era. He said, you know, I was just communicating great things, and they're the same great things that have guided our nation since its founding. That's my paraphrase of his message. And so I believe that that's what should guide us today. What I mean by that is that we need to double down on the same foundational truths that our party has always stood for, our core principles. And we need to articulate those in a way that resonates with this current generation of Americans, not unlike what Reagan did in the in the 70s and what had been done before that. And so I define those as those core principles are things that virtually every American 
does agree with, should agree with. It's the ideas of individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets, human dignity, the sanctity of every single human life. Those are the things that define us not only as Republicans, but more fundamental than that as Americans. And I think if we double down on that, that's what will ensure our success. President Trump took the party in a new direction on a number of policy areas, trade and immigration, which were were issues that had divided Republicans, but there were a lot of free traders in the party. There were a lot of folks in the business wing of the party that felt immigration needed to be to ha- to be easier. Um, and he's taken the party in a different direction. Do you think the party's going to stay in that direction or revert more to where it was before? Well, I, I think that the Trump era uh, introduced some nuances on, in some of these areas. I wouldn't say that it's a different direction. In, in some ways, he he was able to channel a lot of the energy that had been sort of percolating up from the grassroots. And the country needed that. I mean, we needed sort of a, a bull in the China shop. We needed bold leadership for that for that term, that four years. And I think we he could have had another term and should have because the results of that were extraordinary. I mean, I think what Donald Trump did so effectively was he actually delivered on the on the promises, on the message uh, that, that he said during the campaign. He, he fulfilled his promises. And that resonated with the American people. That, that meant something to them because they, they wanted him to uh, fix the immigration problem, fix the border. They, they, they wanted free and fair trade agreements. You know, those kinds of things uh, mean a lot to the American people. And Donald Trump was able to do it in a way that was unique and, and obviously um, very effective. And so w- what I think we need to do going forward is to, is to harness that energy. I mean, we are so proud of the, the broadening tent that we have in the Republican Party. We have more women, for example, more minorities involved than ever before. We have more, what I just described as real Americans, you know, hardworking, blue collar, uh, you know, workers and their families that identify with our party and what we were able to achieve the last four years. And, and I think we need to show them how we can chart that continued course and do that. And, and I, I think they'll reward it. I think they're going to draw a contrast between what's going to happen in this four-year period with the Biden administration uh, and, and contrast that with what we got under Trump. And I think in every measurable category, the American people were better off uh, in the Trump administration than they will be in the Biden administration. Uh, President Trump has remained very vocal now that he's left office. Do you think he's still the most important figure in the Republican Party? Probably right now he is. He's certainly the the, the largest voice. I mean, he, he probably has the most impact. And um, but but there are other voices as well. And and I I think personally, you know, I've gotten to know the the former president pretty well. Spent a lot of time with him. I, I think he he recognizes and appreciates that. You know, he is um, he is a big personality. He he has a big commanding presence in media because that's that's the world that he came from. Uh, and, um, and and that was important for the party to broaden the tent and to do all the things we were able to accomplish. But I, I think there there's room for other voices, and I think those are those are valuable as we as we sort of as we say chart the course for the conservative movement and the party in the years ahead. But uh, clearly, Donald Trump's going to be a big part of that. Yeah, if he wants to run again in 2024, should other prominent Republicans step aside, or do you want to see a, a debate? I, look, I always think a debate is is good, but it, it, it is an interesting quandary that we have right now because many or most of the people who are said to be seriously considering a run are consider themselves allies of the former president. So it's it's sort of an awkward um, position to be in until and unless he makes that final decision 
you know, they, there's a reluctance for them to step out too far. So I, I do hope that we can get it decided sooner rather than later so that we can adequately prepare for 2024, because I do believe it's our race to lose again, because I think that the American people are going to evaluate where they are after a four years of President Biden and, and Harris in that administration. And I think they're going to be looking for a change. The House impeached President Trump for his, uh, they accused him of instigating the January 6th uh, riot at the Capitol. You voted against that impeachment. Uh, Several Republicans in the Senate, though, did vote to convict. How do you see Trump's reputation coming out of that whole process? I think the jury is still out on that in some respects. And I think um, the, the one person who really is has the, the the say in that is is President Trump himself. You know, I th- I think he's he's shown uh, some restraint, more restraint than than is is usual. And in, um, in you know since uh, January, a lot of that, of course, is because he's been I think wrongfully censored and silenced on a lot of the social media platforms. But um, but I think he recognizes the importance of his his voice and and how. I think that can define his legacy uh, as history will tell the story. Look, as I've said, I think by any objective measure, if you take politics out of it and you just look at the extraordinary list of accomplishments of the Trump administration in just four years, it, it, it is an amazing set of accomplishments. And, and, and so I don't think anyone can take that away from him. And I think the, the way he navigates the coming months and the, and the next few years, I think will we'll have a lot to say on you know how how sort of he goes down in history, at least in in the in the short run, and and so he's in charge of that. I think. Let's turn to this Congress. We've seen a lot of party line votes in these first couple months. Um, do you expect that's going to continue? That it's going to be a very partisan, divided Congress, or do you think there might be room for some bipartisanship? For example, on the infrastructure bill that we're now expecting from President Biden. I'll tell you honestly what I believe is in the heart of all my colleagues on the Republican side as vice chairman of the of the House Republican Conference. I'm 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 pretty in touch with that, have my finger on the pulse of, of my friends and colleagues. And I think that there really is a desire for bipartisanship. I do. I believe that there is a desire for us to to govern well and govern together and and do what it is that you're supposed to do in a constitutional republic. And that is it, it, there's a there's a presupposition in a system of government like ours, still being an experiment on the world stage as it is, only 245 years into this, we don't know how long it can last, right? But one of the presuppositions is that you'll have people with very different philosophies and ideas and policy preferences who will come together and and be able to forge a consensus. As difficult as it is sometimes, it's necessary to move the country forward. And so we're losing that. I mean, my honest assessment of the environment in, on Capitol Hill right now is it's it's toxic. It, it truly has become a, a completely toxic environment. And I've only been there a little over four years. I mean, I've seen a dramatic turn just in that amount of time uh, for the worse. And so what I, what I think on, on an individual basis, I think there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who, who long for the days of working together, moving things forward. But it, it, the environment that we're in right now makes it very, very difficult to do. And I think that's a regret uh, individually on the part of a lot of members. The infrastructure bill tracks what we're hearing, which is trillions of dollars in new spending and also trillions of dollars in new taxes. How are Republicans going to react? Well, it'll be, it'll be straight down party lines. I mean, again, that, that it would be a great tragedy. I mean, there's one 
one of the issues, one of the few issues perhaps that you could still forge a bipartisan consensus on is infrastructure because everyone needs it in all their districts. And we all recognize, even those like me who believe in the principles of a limited government, we understand that infrastructure is, is one of the proper roles of the government, but it has to do with priorities. You know, we should prioritize the spending and not just go back to the printing press every time we want to uh, do some sort of uh, big liberal, big government wish list. That's what the other team is advocating for right now without apology. And, and I think that is a completely counterproductive uh, political strategy. It's also obviously not good for the country. We have a $28 trillion federal debt that goes up exponentially. We, we, we're now, we've now eclipsed gross domestic product. I think at last count, we're at 102% debt to GDP. I mean, this is not a sustainable track. So, so what Republicans want to do is fix the roads and bridges and, and not engage in all this other nonsense. The Democrats know that, but so far they've shown an unwillingness to come and across the aisle and work with us to do something meaningful for the American people. So again, if they continue on this track, you'll get a straight party line vote, and I'm sure that it will hit uh, a roadblock in the Senate and things will bog down. That's just, that's where we are today. Right. I bet there's been a lot of borrowed money in the last year to to fight the coronavirus with the various relief packages, including the $1.9 trillion one that passed in March. But my understanding is that the infrastructure bill, Democrats would seek to pay for it with new taxes by repealing much of the 2017 tax law, by increasing uh, capital gains taxes, by increasing taxes on people inheriting assets and that they would be attempting to pay for it. Is it not the time to do that, given all the borrowing we've done? It's, it's not the time to do that. I mean, the economy is still, still on its heels in so many respects. I mean, we're just coming out of the, the pandemic, which has been this unprecedented interruption in, in the, the world's economy and the U.S. economy. And we were thriving prior to that. I mean, everybody forgets because it seems like it's been a decade now. But if you if you if you turn back the clock to, to February of last year, you know, right before the pandemic struck our shores, we had the, the most extraordinary economic numbers in world history, not just U.S. history, lowest levels of unemployment, the highest levels of personal incomes. I mean, every measurable category in, in every demographic. And the coronavirus interrupted that. So what we should do, logic would tell you, in order to achieve those extraordinary gains again, we need to double down on the policies that brought us those extraordinary successes, not do the opposite. And the Democrats' kind of knee-jerk reaction and, and, and approach to always raise taxes, I think, would be devastating for the economy. It will slow down and stifle the, the true economic recovery that we're on the verge of and desperately need. So we will oppose that vigorously because we think it's the worst possible time. But how do you do infrastructure if you don't want to borrow more money on top of the, the trillions we borrowed to fight the coronavirus, and you don't want to raise taxes at a time when the economy is vulnerable? Is it just not the time to do infrastructure? No, look, I, I genuinely believe that it's always a good time to do infrastructure because I believe that is one of the true core fundamental responsibilities of the government. I mean, you could say it's in the top three. I mean, national defense being the first and providing for the infrastructure for the people is a, a, a critical and, and ongoing role of the government, the federal government being you know the interstate highway system and bridges and ports and all the rest. So how do you do it? Well, you do it by placing the proper priority on spending. Everyone knows there is unprecedented levels of 
fraud, waste, and abuse in the government. It sounds like a cliche, but it is true. Look, the last Congress I chaired the Republican Study Committee. It's the largest caucus of conservatives in Congress. We had 148 members in the House. We separated into task forces and working groups to work over that two years while we were in the minority on our ideas and proposals. So one of those task forces was the budget and spending task force. RSC is known for producing the RSC budget in each Congress. And we came forward with ours. In fact, we were the only budget in the last Congress because Nancy Pelosi never fulfilled her obligation to present one. And our budget balanced in 10 years. It showed how to do things and, and do them uh, in, in a more streamlined fashion. I mean, this is not fantasy economics for us. We have real ideas and proposals. But to, to summarize it overall, it's about prioritizing federal spending. I believe, I genuinely believe the federal government is too big. It does too many things. And almost everything it does, it doesn't do well. We, we have to be more realistic about the scope and the size of the federal government in order to do its, its prior, primary responsibilities uh, more effectively and efficiently. That's possible, but it takes political will to do it. Let's say you win back the House next year. And you come back the following January, and you have the majority. What would be on the priority list for House Republicans in terms of legislation, in terms of policy changes? I'm so glad you asked because we often get criticized for not having a game plan, not having a playbook, and not knowing what we're really for. So we worked to remedy that in the last Congress. And, and through the group I was just telling you about, the RSC, Republican Study Committee, we, we had different task forces and working groups on all sorts of issues. I mean, ranging from the budget and spending uh, priorities all the way to, we had a, the American Worker Task Force. We had the Government Efficiency Accountability and Reform Task Force, National Security and Public uh, Affairs, and all, so all these areas, healthcare. And we produced and put on paper and published and released publicly what our ideas are. In fact, we, we, at the end of the last Congress, we combined it all into one large book. It's about a 400-page policy manual, and it's called The Conservative Playbook for a Republican-Led Majority. It is very specific. We have very specific ideas and proposals. We have solutions for all the greatest challenges, challenges facing the American people um, ready to go. And we're ready to run those plays on day one. And that's not just an RSC project because now, because there was 148 of us out of a 199 in the last Congress, um, it involved, of course, most or many other Republicans in the House. And so now conference-wide, now I'm vice chairman of the whole conference, and I've spent a lot of time talking to Leader McCarthy and, and Whip Scalise and, and, uh, and, and Chairwoman Cheney about how we need to not waste all that work product, but we need to implement it conference-wide and, and uh, party-wide. And so we're working now to integrate that. There's task forces, task forces being um, uh, populated right now across the conference, and we'll be working with a lot of this material updating it, refining it, and having it ready so that when we are handed the baton back, so to speak, in 2022 in the majority, we will not waste a day. We'll go right to work uh, implementing these policies, and we're really excited about that. Well, what is we've heard about the, the Democrats' H.R. 1 bill, their, their election l legislation that would uh, set federal standards for elections. What would H.R. 1 be for the Republican Congress of 2023? Well, in terms of voter integrity and, 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 and ensuring that we don't have the chaos that we had in the election cycle of, of, of 2020, I mean, I think you're seeing that priority reflected right now in a lot of the efforts that are going on. I think it, by last count, 40 different state legislatures right now. Of course, that's where we believe as, as conservatives, as Republicans, that's where the jurisdiction really lies is at the state level. That's, what, that's our constitutional tradition. 
Um, it's not really the job of Congress to federalize elections and do all these things that they want to do in H.R. 1. It's actually the opposite. But to clean up our election system, to make sure for every single voter that they know that their vote will count, that there, there won't be you know, hijinks going on in their local precinct and all of that. That, that is something that really is best handled and designed to be handled at, at the state level and the local level. And so we want to encourage that kind of uh, reform and activity. I, I just think some of the criticism of, for example, the Georgia legislation and some of the others that are pending is, is not based on the facts. The people that are out complaining about it haven't reviewed the actual legislation. And it's kind of a frustrating thing to see a talking point picked up and repeated over and over by people who've not really paid much attention to the details of, of all these issues. And, and I think those details are important. Yeah, the Democrats have pretty much said that Republican opposition to their to their voting bill is racist. And what is your reaction to that? That is absurd. We say and believe and advocate and work for this, this idea, this principle that is a, is a sacred thing in a constitutional republic. We want every eligible voter to vote in every election. But, but the, the other side of that is that you have to have integrity. People have to believe in, in the integrity of, of their vote, of the ballot box, of the system itself, or else we lose the fundamental thing the thread that keeps our republic sewn together. And, and what happened because of all of the controversy and the chaos and everything in the 2020 cycle, occasioned by COVID in many circumstances, is that you had in various jurisdictions, all over states, all around the country, you had people moving the goalposts. They were changing the election laws, you know, right up to the time of the election in ways that we argued were unconstitutional. Clear violation of Article 2 of the Constitution itself. It says only the state legislatures themselves have the authority to do that. Instead, you had unilateral state officials in various places changing the rules. And that eroded the people's belief in the integrity of the system itself, and it deters people from participating in future elections. That is a real threat to the republic, no matter what party you're in. So we all ought to get together and agree on these basic ideas that we want to have faith in our system, and we need to look at the best and most effective and efficient ways to ensure that. One of the bright spots for Republicans in the 2020 election was that the portion of African-American voters who voted for Donald Trump increased. There were some uh, pockets around the country where Latino voters moved heavily into the GOP camp. You mentioned this earlier, and I'm curious on that you wanted to build on it. How do you build on that? Well, I think this really does come down to our ability to articulate and distinguish policies. You know, it, it, it shouldn't be about personalities. And unfortunately, you know, our elections in recent years have become that because we're a media saturated culture. And now we have social media and all these other, uh, you know, factors that, that play a role in this. But it really should come down to the competing policy ideas, the platforms. And I am very comfortable, and I think most in our party are, about making those arguments in the days ahead. Because I, I genuinely believe, and I study, I, was, I, I would have been the author of the Republican Party platform, uh, the, the revision that we had for the 2020 cycle, had we had a convention and done all that. I was supposed to chair that committee. Did a lot of work, deep dive policy on, on the platform itself and the contrast that we have with the changing and evolving Democrat Party platform. And, and they're, they're vastly different. You know, 25 or 30 or 40 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to tell much difference between the two parties. But in their platforms, but now it's it's a stark contrast. So I like our chances when we're able to be in venues and forums where we can explain the two competing visions on the role of government in our lives, the 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 
you know, defense of our, of our fundamental freedoms, our inalienable rights, um, what it means to be an American. I think we have the answers to all that. And as I like to say to my friends and, and all these lunch groups I go speak to all the time, it's a great time to be alive if you have the answers. And we just need the opportunity to present those. And when we are, I think we'll be successful. Congressman, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app. Thank you.